Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Hummus Tailgate Party. I'm your host, Thomas Jackson. On today's episode, we will be finishing up part two of the season preview for 2022. Uh, we're going to get to some Heisman futures. We are going to get to which coaches are starting out the year on the hot seat. Uh, spoiler alert, someone in Lincoln, Nebraska's seat just got even hotter than it already was. Uh, we're going to look at the AP rankings really quick, a couple of futures, and then I'm going to get into a quick little week zero recap and week one preview. A lot to cram into this episode to get everything out and up before the season starts on Thursday. If you didn't see or hear part one of the season preview episode, I posted that last week where I did a review of every conference and the main players playoff prediction at the end. I also did a 2022 off-season recap a couple weeks before that, recapping a lot of the things that went into the NIL, transfers, all the craziness, new hires over the off-season. So that's all up and on the feed. But let's get into it. Oh, nope, one more thing. Um, we have the College Pick'em group on ESPN. That's called it's the ESPN College Pick'em. If you download their fantasy app for fantasy football or go on the website to the fantasy tab, you'll find the College Pick'em there. Our group is 2022 Hummus Tailgate Party Pick'em, and the group password is hummus, all lowercase letters. Uh, it's free to enter. We just pick a few games against the spread every week and tally it up at the very end, and whoever wins will get a prize. Uh, it starts on Saturday. If you haven't joined already, it's not too late because they didn't have any week zero games. So everyone, please play along. It'll be a lot of fun. ESPN picks the game, so there's some kind of random duds on there this week. But when we get out of the week week one early season stuff, it'll be better, more entertaining, competitive games to pick against the spread all season long. So please join along for that. I tweeted the link out, and I'll post it uh, one or two more times as well. So we'll get started with some Heisman odds. Uh, there's three quarterbacks at the top of the pack that are quite quite larger favorites than everybody else in the country. It is led by C.J. Stroud, Ohio State's quarterback, at plus 220. Uh, Bryce Young is right behind him at plus 350. And then Caleb Williams, the Oklahoma transfer to USC, is at plus 700. So Stroud is the favorite to win the award this year. Uh, his odds are pretty similar to Bryce's, um, but Bryce, even though he's the second largest favorite to win the award and repeat, there's only been one repeat winner ever of the Heisman, which was Archie Griffin in 1974 to 75. So even though he's expected to have as good of a season as anybody in the country, I wouldn't advise putting any dough on Bryce to repeat because history tells us it's just not going to happen, even if he does have an amazing season. C.J. Stroud, I mean, you know, I think he's right there with Bryce. Talent-wise, um, there's just not much value in betting someone plus 220 when you're essentially betting them against the entire rest of the country. Uh, Caleb Williams at plus 700, that's a little bit better value there. He's obviously got a lot of attention on him and Riley and the whole USC program. I don't really think USC is going to have a good enough season as a team to get him catapulted into serious Heisman contention. Um, but if you are high on USC this year, then maybe that's something to look at that you know rewards you with a little bit bigger payout. 
the next uh, pair of players are all the way down at plus 2,000. That's Will Anderson out of Alabama. Uh, a lot of people said last year that Bryce Young wasn't even the best player on his own team after he won the Heisman Award because people are so high on Will Anderson. Uh, he's got just as good of a chance as going number one in the NFL draft this upcoming uh, spring as C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young do. It really just depends on what NFL team is picking, but it will probably be one of the three of them. I think that Will Anderson's the best player in the country, but it has been a very long time since a defender has won this award. You have to go all the way back to 1997 when Charles Woodson won it. Uh, over Peyton Manning to find the last defender to hoist the Heisman Trophy. I feel like now, I mean, I don't think Anderson will win this award. If he just, if he has the season people are expecting, he should definitely be invited to New York. Winning it is another situation, especially when there's some Alabama fatigue among the voters and him and Bryce would undoubtedly be splitting some votes. Um, but I think there's been enough buzz about how defenders never win it anymore and with social media nowadays and Will Anderson having such a high profile coming into this season. It's, you know, maybe worth a couple dollars. It's an interesting look. Uh, maybe some people would vote for him just to try to prove a point that a defender can win it again. And if he wins it, he would deserve it just as much as any quarterback or running back or wide receiver in the country, because I think right now he is the best player in the country. Bijan Robinson, the stud running back out of Texas, is also right there at plus 2,000. Then there's another big gap, and we get to the plus 3,000 to plus 4,000 range, where you see a big bunch of quarterbacks and a couple other skill players uh, led by DJ Ungulele, out of Clemson, he might not even be that good. It's just the fact that he plays at Clemson and he had like one really good game a couple years ago. That's probably why he's this high on the list. He might not even be starting in a couple months. I don't really know. Uh, but he's got a lot to sort out because last season Clemson's offense was not very good at all. But if he gets it rolling, then Clemson is high enough profile. They're going to be a very good team if he allows them to be. So he is a decent value pick as well. Quinn Ewers, the five-star uh, quarterback that will be starting the season at Texas. Uh, Dylan Gabriel, this is, I think, probably my... F I think this is the wisest bet that you could make is Dylan Gabriel. He's jumped around from a couple different schools, but he wound up at Oklahoma. He's always had some injury problems, but he's sitting there at 30-1. to 1. And Oklahoma, I mean, they're a Heisman quarterback factory, even though it's a new regime taking over in Norman. I really like the upside of that bet, uh, as opposed to some of these other others at lower odds. And, you know, playing in the Big 12, you're normally not going against the best defenses in the world, so you can just put up really, really good stats if he can st stay healthy. Uh, the Ohio State wide receiver, whose last name I can only pronounce ha half of, Jackson Smith, uh, he, if you watch the Rose Bowl last year, went for about 700 yards and like a dozen touchdowns. And so he's going to be uh, the number one guy that C.J. Stroud is targeting. He's super talented. Jameer Gibbs, uh, the Georgia Tech running back transfer to Alabama, is sitting there at 40-1, to 1, as well as Tyler Van Dyke, Miami's quarterback. So those are some of the you know top dozen or so Heisman contenders. After that, it drops off pretty far and you're getting into some very serious long shots uh, after those 40 to ones. But that's an interesting group. 
for some reason, Colorado has a rule where I can't place any wagers on the Heisman winners. If I did, I'd probably stay away from the top couple favorites, uh, especially Bryce, since no one has won it since you know, back to back since '74, '75. That's and you know even C.J. Stroud, while he is the overall favorite, you're just not getting much much. Uh, value there at plus 220 but I really like Will Anderson just in case it'd be worth a five or a ten spot at plus 2,000 and uh, take your pick maybe just take a shot on one of those 30 to 1 40 to 1 quarterbacks I really like those odds for Dylan Gabriel myself but lots of interesting options Uh, be an interesting bet if it's allowed in your home state so now we'll move on to hot seat coaches (laughs) Scott Frost was already going to be leading off this list that I made before week zero. So obviously, uh, Nebraska losing to Northwestern 31 to 28 in Dublin, which we'll talk a little bit more about the game itself later in the pod. Uh, But this offseason, Frost restructured his um, contract with Nebraska. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jim Harbaugh did that last year where the administration has basically said, we don't want to fire you. We want to give you one more year to try to figure this out. But for the amount of money that we're paying you and the lack of results that you've given us, we need to just work some stuff out and try to make this a little more fair for both parties. Harbaugh agreed, had a great season, beat Ohio State, took Michigan to the playoff. Uh, Scott Frost agreed, and his season is not starting off so hot. He has always been an offensive guy. He was the quarterback in Nebraska back when they were really good. Um, He has always been the play caller, which for some people can be a lot to handle, the managerial aspect of your head coaching responsibilities as well as orchestrating the entire offense. Um, and he, but he just this off season decided to give the play calling reins to an assistant. So you think, okay, maybe that'll be something fresh. He hired a whole slew of new assistants on his staff this year. Maybe that's the fresh start and change that they need. So he can focus more on the head coaching decisions and leave the offensive play calling to someone else who can solely focus on that. Well, After the onside kick fiasco, I don't really know what the hell to say because that doesn't back up that theory at all. Uh, We'll talk about the onside kick later. But Frost is now 15 and 30 overall at Nebraska. And this is his fifth season that just started on Saturday. They went three and nine last year. And this was truly one of the most bizarre seasons of any team that I've ever seen in college football. Eight of their nine losses were by one score, and their ninth loss was by nine points to Ohio State, who is one of the best teams in the country. So I've just normally a team that's three and nine will at least get their ass kicked a couple of times, if not many. But Nebraska put on a clinic of biblical proportions of ripping their fans' hearts out last year. So I truly feel for all they had to go through because it's just unprecedented. Uh, with that being said, they can hang their hat on the be- being probably the best 3-9 and nine team of all time. They should raise a banner UCF style since that's where Frost came from. Uh, seems appropriate to me. Uh, so someone on Twitter or the college football Reddit, uh, I forget where I saw it said, if 
Scott Frost won his next 50 games, went 50-0 and going forward. He would still have a worse record than Bo Pelini, who was the coach before Scott Frost at Nebraska, coached there from 2008 to 2014, and he got fired uh, for going basically 9-3 and three all the time. Now they go 3-9, and nine, and, uh, you know, they, they just seem farther and further away because they are from the glory days every single year. So that was kind of a, a shocking stat to see. It's just one of those classic things. Be careful what you wish for. And, you know, when you when you want to rock the boat, getting upset about going 9-3 and three all the time, you know, it, it could always be worse. But now it really couldn't be very much worse for Nebraska. It's, it's hard to see a world where he doesn't get canned. I mean, even making it to the end of the season would be surprising at this point. Maybe they let him do that just out of respect since he is a Nebraska guy. Um, but his buyout as a part of this new renegotiated contract of his, his buyout reduces significantly on October 1st. So they, uh, they, they, they'll probably wait until then, and if they want to do it in the middle of the season, it'll probably happen in October so they can get a, a head start on the head coaching search. Um, if not, I imagine that's probably what's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's over. It's over for Frost after the Northwestern game. There's no way. It's, it's hard to see them even making a bowl game this year. So that's, uh, that's probably all she wrote for the Frost tenure in Lincoln. Uh, the next person that it's becoming harder and harder to see having employment after this college football season is Brian Harson. We've already gone into all of his stuff in the offseason recap episode, so I'm not going to retell the story of the coup. Um, but when all of that crap was happening and the powers that be, whoever the hell that is at Auburn, were trying to stage him, for the affair or whatever back in the winter, um, it was basically understood that he and the athletic director, Alan Green, would be gone before too long, uh, both of them, because the president that was there when Harson was hired is no longer at Auburn. Alan Green just, they, they made it sound like a oh, he stepped down to pursue other interests. They fired him. They told him to get the hell out. And they were just trying to do that to make the PR look a little bit better. It's really a weird situation uh, because he seemed like a great guy. He's from, uh, his background is at like Notre Dame, very well put together. Seems like everybody that I was friends with that went to Auburn had a favorable opinion of him. And he always seemed like a professional to me. Um, so I don't really know, but now that he's gone, he was the athletic director when Harson was hired. So now Harson has nobody. Auburn's schedule is, as always, one of the hardest in the country this year. And even if with their roster, I mean, Harson has not been recruiting very well uh, over the past couple years. But, you know, the first season was the one where he got hired. So that's always tough to cover your bases when you don't have a full recruiting season. And then this year was when they slandered his name and drug it through the mud. So it was probably really easy for other coaches to go and tell players, hey, you think this guy's even going to be here in like six months? Probably not. Don't go to Auburn. Come to my school. Not that complicated. It is complicated for Auburn trying to get a decent recruiting class during all of that um, all of that mess, but they did it to themselves, 
And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be, I think it would be a great job by Harson if he could lead that team to six and six with how hard the schedule is. Um, but if he goes six and six, then he's just going to get booted. So I guess we'll see if the boosters and whoever try to make up another story to fire him for cause. Um, it'd be entertaining, if nothing else. I wouldn't wish that on the man, but, uh, you know, I <laughs> I can't put anything past Auburn University at this point. They, uh, they truly outdo themselves each and every time. Moving on to Tempe, Arizona. Herm Edwards took over in 2018. Pretty big-time splash hire for the Sun Devils. He's been 25 and 18 overall in his time there in Arizona, but he's never done better than eight and five, which he had that record both in 2019 and 2021. Not that eight and five is a season that Arizona State fans are going to be up in arms about. It was just expected that they'd be able to take one more step and be competing more seriously for the Pac-12. And they never did because they decided to, during the heart of COVID in 2020, uh, host recruits on campus when everybody else was locked away in their homes in the country. And they got caught. They got NCAA violations. Now, basically, the whole coaching staff from 2020 is gone. Besides Herm Edwards, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, they've lost a ton in the transfer portal. Their quarterback, who was a really athletic cat, Jaden Daniels, went to LSU. Emory Jones from Florida did transfer in there. Uh, so that's nice to have an experienced athletic QB fill in for Daniels. But there's just way too much off-the-field crap. I don't see any, I don't see any way that Arizona State is going to be very good this year or that they're they have any more patience with Edwards. So I think he's gone after this season. I think Georgia Tech's coach Jeff Collins, poor guy, that's just a really tough situation trying to flip that program from the triple option and everything. He's 9 and 25 after 3 years. He lost any good port any good players they did have, which there weren't that many of in the portal this year and last year. And on top of that, and you know, really having more of a group of five roster, having to play in a power five conference, their out of conference schedule is Ole Miss, Central Florida, and Georgia. So it's hard to see them even winning three games this year. I hit their season win total under. Uh, I do not think that Jeff Collins will be running the show in Atlanta for much longer, unfortunately. Scott Satterfield, um, he is 18 and 19 overall at Louisville, six and seven last year. They've lost three straight games to Kentucky. Their recruiting has dropped outside of the top 50, which they were never a terribly competitive recruiting school, but, you know, good enough to hold their own. Certainly top 50 worthy. Um, he Last year was a really disappointing season for them. It doesn't quite seem like he and the program really see eye to eye on a lot of things. However, Louisville does have some positive buzz going into this season. So we'll see. He's more of a yellow light instead of a red light like all these former coaches that I was bringing up and uh, lastly Dino Babers at Syracuse it's just been a really rough ride there they have one of the worst rosters in the power five and one more really disappointing season where you don't even get close to sniffing a bowl game could do it for him so as we did last year we'll kind of keep an eye on this list um, last year we got off to a freaking hot start because USC fired Clay Helton in like the third week. So who knows? Maybe we'll see some some drama like that here before too long. 
once we get a couple couple weeks of games under our belt. But that's it for now. Those are all the big candidates that I think have a really good shot at not having their job this time next year. And we'll kind of keep an eye on that and update the, li- the list week to week, depending on how these teams do. I wanted to do one quick little segment on the AP rankings that came out. I'm not going to rehearse all 25 teams, but I just heard one interesting little uh, fun fact that I wanted to talk about for a couple minutes. So 19 out of the last 20 seasons, there's been a preseason top 10 team that has finished unranked at the end of the year. Uh, the one year that this didn't happen was 2019, but 19 of the 20 past years, a top 10 team has finished unranked, uh, which is surprising. Last year, we had three of them. It was North Carolina, A&M, and Iowa State. I was really big on Iowa State last year, so that that was a disappointing one for me to see them crash and burn as bad as they did. UNC also really really disappointing. Um, you know, A&M had the issue with their quarterback, the injury to Haynes King. Um, so that was a little more understandable that they were going to fall after he got hurt in week two and was never able to, res- uh, to return. So the top 10 is as follows. Number one, Alabama. Number two, Ohio State. Number three, Georgia. Number four, Clemson. Number five, Notre Dame. Number six, Texas A&M. Number seven, Utah. Eight, Michigan. Nine, Oklahoma. And ten, Baylor. It's really hard to look at this and say what team out of these ten is going to finish unranked. If things really go bad with the quarterback situation in Clemson, I mean, they do have a backup who they can eventually put in and try to salvage the season, and their schedule is easy enough to where, you know, even if they're not playoff contention, no one would really expect them to drop so far that they're out of the rankings. I think they're going to be okay. I think their defense is good enough to keep them, you know, at least in the top 15 if they don't have the playoff contending season that they're hoping for. Michigan's got a weird quarterback situation. Uh, We'll talk about that later, but they lost a lot from last year. wonder if there's a bit of a hangover after beating Ohio State and winning the Big Ten for the first time in a million years. Oklahoma, a lot of question marks, so many new pieces on the team and the staff there. Um, But I think my pick would be Texas A&M. And I'm not just dogging on them, but, you know, that – I just think everyone's one year too early on the hype train. And while I, I, I don't think that they're going to be a bad team, I think that their schedule is just hard enough to where they wouldn't even have to have a bad year to where, you know, they finish eight and four yet again. And they're really scoping out next season as the one where they're going to make the push for the West and the SEC in the playoff. So, I don't mean that as a drag at A&M, but I just think with their schedule and how young they are, even though they have all the talent and the quarterback who hasn't played in a year, Haynes King starting off this season, you know, they're in the hardest division in college football. They play Miami week three, I believe it is, in College Station. Um, So I think out of those top 10 teams, I could see the path to them sliding the furthest, the easiest, just mostly because of the schedule and the youth. Um, but I don't know, an interesting little kind of thought exercise to go through with the 
with the preseason top 10 ending unranked because it's almost it's almost a damn certainty 95% of the time in the past couple of decades. So that one's fun. I don't have time to go too deep into it, um, but I did release some futures on Twitter and Instagram a few days ago. They're still up on the Twitter feed. Um, these were just win totals for the most part, over-unders and conference picks. Uh, like I hit Utah to win the Pac-12 and I parlayed Bama and Ohio State to win their respective conferences since they were such juicy favorites alone. Um, that got us a little into the plus money, but those are all on the Twitter page if anybody's interested. I think I had like nine different teams where I played an over or an under, and uh, so I'll kind of be <laughs> kind of following those teams a little bit closer than the rest maybe, but I've been wanting to pick like an official team to follow for the podcast, and I've decided it's going to be West Virginia. I didn't want to, I was on the Utah hype train last year, so I'm going to be pulling for them hard this year, because last year, the early quarterback situation, it just, they didn't get the start they needed to make a playoff push, but this year, I totally believe in them, but they're starting off in the top 10, so I wanted to pick a team that's a little more low-key, while I don't think West Virginia is playoff worthy this year I think that they have a really interesting situation brewing in Morgantown with JT Daniels finally getting his own shot to be the lead man up there Um, I also just like the program I think it's just one of the cool schools in college football that when they're good the game the whole game is just a little bit more fun so their win total was only like five and a half so everyone go and hit that over they have a tough game week one against Pittsburgh um, but I think they can give them a good run for their money. Even if they don't win, they're seven and a half point dogs, and I will be taking the Mountaineers in that one. Um, let's see, what else? So I might be doing like a little like mini Mountaineer update every week or something. Just have some fun with that. All right, now on to week zero. <laughs> so as previously noted, uh, Nebraska lost to Northwestern 31 to 28, the Nebraska week zero meltdown. Happened yet again for the whole country to see. Um, I was up in the mountains, so unfortunately I didn't get to see this game. That's my own fault for not trusting the process of Nebraska in Week Zero. Uh, I should have known it was appointment television, but next year I won't be missing it. Uh, if they agree to play next year, I'm sure they want no part of it. Uh, I got saw the highlights and read Twitter for about eight hours once I did get back home and get got some service uh, when everyone was reacting to the aftermath of it. But Nebraska had a lead and momentum in multiple parts of this game. It looked like their offensive line uh, was just getting their ass kicked all game long by Northwestern's defensive front. Casey Thompson, the quarterback from Texas last year who transferred to uh, Nebraska, was running for his life the entire game. He made some really impressive, like reminded me of Bo Nix at LSU type of just you know, pull a rabbit out of your hat type of play, scramble around backwards 30 yards, and then somehow find a big tight end down the field for a first down. But Northwestern was winning at half. Nebraska came out and scored two straight touchdowns in like less than a minute. And then Scott Frost decided to kick an onside kick, which they did not recover, shockingly. And that was basically what decided the game because Northwestern got the ball back took the lead and Nebraska was never able to get it back. So that was just the boneheaded decision. I was saying like, he's not even calling the plays anymore. He's in charge of those type of like strategic 
game management decisions. And then you come out and just make one of the most boneheaded decisions that I've ever seen. It just makes no sense. It really doesn't. They had a chance to even go down entire win the game on the final drive, but it was bobbled by a receiver and intercepted and the game was over. It really felt like there was no way that this Nebraska week zero thing would happen again, especially as an 11 point favorite, even though they won like three games last year, like so did Northwestern. So it's not like they were playing someone who had a huge outlook for this year or anything. And uh, I haven't seen any pictures of him stateside in the last couple of days, but if he is back home in Nebraska, I'm honestly surprised that the Cornhusker administration didn't dump Scott Frost on the tarmac and leave his ass over in Dublin. The Cornhuskers have a little break, and then it's just going to get really hard. They have a couple cupcakes the next two weeks before Oklahoma comes to town. I'm sure that'll be fun. Then their Big Ten schedule starts, where they're probably only going to be favored in one to two conference games all year long. So at this point, you know, if they had won that game, you you have some hope. The Big Ten West like I went over last episode, they've got a bunch of solid teams that no one that's going to be great. I think it's just going to be a lot of seven, eight, nine win schools. So, you know, even though it's a pretty good, you know, top to bottom division, everybody's gettable. Nobody, it's not like they have to play Ohio state or, you know, Georgia or Alabama, or they have no one like that on their schedule. Even Oklahoma getting them in September is probably going to be a lot easier than getting Oklahoma in November when they have time to gel and develop the chemistry throughout the season. So Nebraska, by losing this one of their few games that they were going to be favored in all season, they have really dug themselves a huge hole, even though it isn't even week one yet. Um, and I just, I don't see a path for them to make a bowl game. I don't see a path for Scott Frost to probably even make it to November. Um, but on the other hand, Pat Pat Fitzgerald, the head coach at Northwestern continues to do one of the best coaching jobs in the country with them. Huge bounce back game after a three and nine year last year. So, I mean, it's, it's at this point, it's like clockwork, like every other year, every even year. Northwestern is a really, really solid program. So maybe we should see this coming in a couple years, even if they suck next season. But it's, it, Pat Fitzgerald does a really good job there, and he deserves a lot of credit. Uh, then just quickly, Illinois beat Wyoming 38-6. to The Illini are now the kings of Week 0 with back-to-back victories. That puts them at two, the most all-time in college football history. Week 0 wins. And Vandy absolutely trounced Hawaii. Vandy, I still think, is probably going to be one of the worst teams in the Power Five. It's just that Hawaii is one of the worst teams in the FBS. Hawaii got the ball first in that game and drove right down the field, put seven points on the board, and it looked like Vandy might be in trouble or we might at least just get a competitive game. Uh, and then they, Hawaii was outscored 63-3 to after the first three minutes of the ball game. So that was all she wrote. Good for Vandy. They're going to have a tough year once SEC plays, play gets here. So it was kind of fun to see them getting to enjoy a blowout. But poor Hawaii, they, they have a long way to go. Before I get into our week one preview, 
there have been some starting quarterback announcements over the past few days. There's still some battles going on across the country. Some cl- coaches like to hold it super close to the vest and not announce anything until the day of. But now that it's officially the Monday of game week, when I'm recording this, a lot of people have announced either today or, or over the past weekend who's going to be getting the starting role uh, for their week one game. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Texas A&M chose Haynes King over the LSU transfer, Max Johnson. King was the starting quarterback last year and got hurt early in week two against Colorado, right down the road from me at Mile High Stadium, and never returned for the rest of the year. Um, so it's good to see that he's back and healthy and able to reclaim his position as the starting quarterback. Uh, Auburn chose TJ Finley over A&M's backup who played most of last year when Haynes King went down. And that's of course, Zach Calzada. Uh, but Finley, who was at Auburn last year after he transferred from LSU, this is all such a mouthful. <laughs> uh, Finley gets the role. Calzada has been kind of hurt this whole off season, uh, from what I've heard. So maybe if Finley struggles early on, Auburn's got a couple easy games to open up the season so they can kind of ease them into it before Penn State comes to the Plains week three. Um, but I don't know. Maybe we'll see Calzada at some point this season. Maybe we won't. Um, but Harson went with Finley. Michigan, they have a really interesting situation. Uh, so Cade McNamara is the one that led them to their awesome season last year all the way to the playoff. He is their veteran quarterback, and as far as I knew, he was going to be starting this year, but they have a five-star backing him up named J.J. McCarthy, who's a sophomore uh, sophomore now, and Michigan announced that McNamara is going to start week one, and McCarthy is going to start week two. They have like the easiest September of any college football team that I've ever seen in my life. They open up with Colorado State, and then they play Hawaii, and then if they need a third week to figure it out, they play UConn. So they have plenty of time to get this sorted out before their schedule ramps up in October. Um, But I think the suspicion is that they're going to go – with the more talented but less proven quarterback in McCarthy, uh, if they're even having this deep of a, a competition in the first place over a veteran, a veteran starter, then I think it'll probably end up being McCarthy if he can just hold his own against Hawaii, which at this point I think I probably could. Um, and West Virginia just announced that JT Daniels got the starting role, which I didn't even know was a true competition. Maybe it was more of a formality out of respect for a previous quarterback who's been on the roster there. But Daniels will be leading the charge in Morgantown. All right, now for the week one preview. Cheers, everybody. We made it. Uh, games are happening from Thursday to Monday. So once the back half of this week gets here, it's game on. Uh, I'm just going to go over the games really quickly, talk about the times, the spreads. Um, I'm not going to have the time this week to go super deep into anything. But we get started off, and all of these times are in Central. I will probably mess them up because I'm in Mountain, but I know most people listening are in Central, so I will try to stick to that and not cause any confusion. Uh, so Thursday, 6 o'clock, reviving the backyard brawl in Pittsburgh. It's West Virginia at Pitt. This was an old Big East rivalry that unfortunately died when these teams went to their uh, new conferences, but it's really cool that they're scheduling each other as out-of-conference foes and getting this revi- uh, 
rivalry revived. Uh, this game is, I mean, I think it's going to be a good game. Pitt is a seven and a half point favorite. I'll probably be on the Mountaineers just because I like them, but Pitt is a really good team this year. They did lose, obviously, Kenny Pickett from last year. Uh, interesting little note about this quarterback matchup between the two. West Virginia has JT Daniels, who we remember most recently from Georgia, but he went to Georgia from USC. And then Pittsburgh has Keaton Slovis, who also transferred there from USC. So it's two former USC quarterbacks battling out at Heinz Field. <laughs> Probably not where they both expected to be with their careers a few years ago, but it should be a really fun matchup, and I'm glad that they're getting these two back together. Uh, then an hour later at 7 p.m. Central, we have Penn State, a three-point favorite on the road at Purdue. I think both of these teams are good, not great, um, but it should be a really great game. I think that's a really tricky spot for Penn State to have to walk into uh, to West Lafayette on the road at nighttime the Thursday of week one. I think Purdue's going to put up a really good battle there, even though Penn State is probably a more high-profile team coming into this season than Purdue. Purdue has some playmakers, and I think that they're going to be kind of sneaky good. So I would... Uh, I would think on it before you t take that minus three with the Nittany Lions. Saturday, uh, one, of the <laughs> one of the coolest games all weekend, I think, I hope. North Carolina is a one-point favorite at Appalachian State at 11 a.m. Central. I don't know why North Carolina agree agreed to play this game. I mean, it's cool that they did. App State is one of my other favorite teams in the country. I wanted to go to school there so bad. Um but this is just like the ultimate, like I've never seen a bigger trap than this. If I were North Carolina, I maybe they're just trying to throw the little brother a bone or something and go and play there. But I would want no part of that. App State has obviously always been a very good program. And I wish that game was at like 11 at night, not 11 in the morning. But I'm sure Boone will still be rocking and bumping off and everything. So uh, I don't know much about App State this year. All I know is that I would be scared as hell if I was North Carolina. At 2.30, getting into the big games, number 11, Oregon, is playing number 3, Georgia, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Bo Nix, I don't think they've made this official, but I believe he is expected to get the starting nod for Oregon. Uh, he's obviously got a lot of history with Georgia. Oregon's brand new head coach was Georgia's defensive coordinator last year. So some pretty interesting little dynamics, uh, although I don't know how interesting the game itself will be. The dogs are a 17-point favorite, and with this being in Atlanta against a team from literally the other corner of the country, it's going to be like 95% Georgia fans, so they may as well be playing in Athens. So I hope Oregon can be competitive and make it a good game, but I'm not putting my money on it. I think Georgia will win this one pretty easy. Uh, at the same time... Uh, number 23, Arkansas, or sorry, number 23, Cincinnati plays at number 17, Arkansas at 2.30 as well. Arkansas is a six and a half point favorite. This is another very interesting game. I think this will be more competitive than the Georgia-Oregon battle. 
they both lost some big pieces, especially Cincinnati with their quarterback and star cornerback leaving after the playoff team last year. Arkansas, they obviously lost Burks, but they get K.J. Jefferson back. I think the Hogs will win this game, but Cincinnati's been recruiting too well for too long to just roll over. So I think this one will be a really competitive, fun game in the afternoon. At nighttime, the game I'm most excited for probably all weekend is number seven, Utah goes to the swamp to play Florida in their first game under Billy Napier at 6 p.m. Central. Utah is a three-point favorite now. I want to take them. I want to make that my best bet, but it just feels like the biggest trap in the history of the earth. Uh, They are just so much better than Florida on paper. They are so ready to make a playoff run this year. Florida has so much to figure out, but just something about being in the swamp at nighttime. I mean, maybe Utah comes out and just kicks their ass and that's the end of it. Um, If anyone's going to do it, they're the type of team to do it. But something about it just makes me feel a little nervous laying that field goal on the road. I don't know. I'll I'll think about it, but I'm considering it for the best bet, so we'll see. Uh, And then at 6.30 Central, we have College Game Day going to Columbus, number five, Notre Dame at number two, Ohio State. Ohio State, every time I look, their spread is increasing. It started at 14.5. Now it's like 17.5. You know, against the number five team in the country, but Ohio State is going to be that good. It's a, it's a situation where even if Notre Dame hangs around at halftime, hangs around sometime during the third quarter, Ohio State could just flip the game on its head so fast with a turnover and a big passing play, and it might go from a three-point game to a 17-point game and you know, as much time as it would take you to go grab a beer from the fridge. They're going to be that explosive this year. I don't have any faith in Notre Dame being able to keep it close for four quarters, uh, but also 17.5 points. I don't know. That's just that's a whole lot to weigh. <laughs> Although, may, you know, if they beat Notre Dame, like Notre Dame has a has – a, a little bit of a habit of not covering in these big, big matchups like this. So I don't know. I'll, I'll, it'll be hard, hard not to take the Buckeyes, but I think that they'll they'll win handily, even if Notre Dame can keep it closed for a half or so. On Sunday, we have Florida State at LSU in New Orleans at the Superdome. This game is at 6.30 at night. LSU is a three-point favorite in this game. Both of these schools uh, really craving a bounce back, especially Florida State. It's been so long since they had a competitive season. Obviously, this is the start of the Brian Kelly era. Um, Even though LSU might not be too good this year, this is a game that I think they should be able to win based on talent alone. Um, but I think Florida State is moving in the right direction, so I think this will probably be a pretty close one, as the as the spread indicates. But again, kind of like Georgia playing in Atlanta, LSU playing in New Orleans, that's going to be a heavy, heavy Tiger crowd. So that'll be a tough one for L- or for FSU to walk into on the holiday holiday weekend in New Orleans. Uh, Monday. Clemson plays at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. I don't think Georgia Tech will have as big of a crowd there as Georgia or LSU in their games. Uh, This game's at 7 o'clock. Clemson's a 21.5-point favorite. 
Even though I still have plenty of questions about Clemson's offense, Georgia Tech is going to be really, really bad this year. And I'm also considering that Clemson spread for the best bet this this week. But I'll release that maybe on Thursday or Friday when I have a couple more days to look over some things and think on it. But hoping to start the year off with a winner like we did last year and have a nice profitable season. Um, so that's it as far as the schedule goes, except for my Pac-12 after dark game of the week, one of my favorite things in the world. Boise State is playing at Oregon State. The Beavers are a three-point favorite. This kicks off at 9.30 Central, so this will be a fun one to wind down to after the Notre Dame and Florida games. And um, I like the Beavers in this one. I'm pretty high on them this season to be kind of a sneaky, frisky team. And uh, I hope that they can start their season off for, with a win in Corvallis. What I'll be watching in this little mini segment, I just say, you know, morning, afternoon, night, what are the games that I'm most interested to see? Um, at 11 a.m., like I said, that UNC at Appalachian State game. At 2.30, Cincinnati at Arkansas, just because I think that'll be a more competitive game than Oregon-Georgia. And then at 6 o'clock, Utah-Florida, because I think that'll be a more competitive game than Notre Dame-Ohio State. But hopefully I'll be in a bar. I'll be in New Orleans this weekend, so I'm not cooking any game day grub, but I'll sure as hell post whatever beautiful meals I'm eating down there in the Big Easy. So I'm sure I'll... uh, be able to get some good grub and hopefully make everybody a little bit jealous. That's all I've got for now. Keep your eye out for best bet. Please join the hummus tailgate party pick them group on ESPN. Like I said, it's free to join. Just pick a handful of games against the spread every week. It takes two seconds. Hopefully we can get a lot of people in there and have some fun this year. Um, so I will check back in after week one. Um, pray for me in new Orleans this weekend going to be a good one. But uh, yeah, can't wait to get it going. We finally made it. Cheers, everybody. Enjoy the long holiday weekend. Be safe. Bye-bye.